0: Well, at a certain stage in their development, children begin to get a thrill in knowing a secret. Where the early stages of children's life are pretty much an open book where nothing is hidden, uh, there comes a point when they like to know something that no one else knows. If you've been a parent, or even if you haven't, you've likely heard a child come to you with a little smirk on their face saying, "'I have a secret.'" And at that stage, it usually doesn't take a whole lot to pry it out of them. And the whole thing is kind of cute and innocent. But this cute and innocent stage kind of morphs into something that becomes something not so nice and not so innocent. Children soon grow up, and when we grow up, we soon become skilled at hiding things, at keeping various parts of our lives secret. We start to operate at a level where we get good at keeping certain areas of our lives, mysterious to others. What starts with a playful secret soon turns into secretly doing something like taking a cookie from a cookie jar to secretly engaging in certain attitudes, practices that we try to keep hidden from other people. And of course, all of that is a result of sin. Sin manifests itself in the secret places, in the dark places. But people in our day and age also have a fascination with trying to figure out uh, new ways of making life better. And when people discover a certain way of making their own life better, they sometimes uh, create a market for sharing their secret with others. They believe that they've discovered something that other people need. And so they create a course, or they uh, write a book, or they make a documentary. They want to no longer keep this secret. They want to reveal their secret. And so they've discovered the secret to a successful budget, or the secret to having happy children, the secret of staying in love, the secret of instantaneous healing, the secret of getting things done or getting things organized, the secret of effective leadership. And on and on it goes. They hope that by revealing their secret... They'll help others with their need. And I think the side motivation is that they're going to make a buck or two on the side while they do that. Well, there's one self-help book that has also capitalized on this, and it's simply entitled The Secret. This book was released almost exactly seven years ago in November 2006. But I came across it again last week as I was looking at that uh, bestseller list before my talk on discernment. This book has been on the bestseller list for all of those seven years. And I think it was helped, probably no doubt, by being uh, endorsed by Oprah. It was on her, whatever she calls that, her book readers club or whatever that is. It's really actually amazing that this book has become so popular. Because people, uh, um, according to this book, don't even need to go too far to find the secret That Rhonda Byrne, the author, discovered. The secret is actually resident in you. Here are some quotes from the book that I saw in a review of the book that I read. On page 164, it says, You are God in a physical body, you are spirit in the flesh, you are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being, you are all power, you are all wisdom. You are all intelligence. You are perfection. You are magnificent. You are the creator. And you are creating the creation of you on this plane. Doesn't that make you all feel better about yourself? Later on on page 183, she says this. The earth turns on its orbit for you. And uh, by the way, you, the Y is always capitalized. "The The oceans ebb and flow for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars come out for you. Every beautiful thing you see, every wonderful thing you experience is all there for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. No matter who you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe. You are the heir to the kingdom. You are the perfection of life. And now you know the secret. Where has this been all your life, right? Now you know. Well, in some ways, this is a typical self-help book. You likely uh, caught, of course, the outright blasphemy there, attributing to ourselves what only belongs to God. But this is the logical uh, progression of our world's uh, fascination with itself. The secret has this whole time been right under your nose. This whole time, it's been hiding in you. And so now you know the secret is out. And Rhonda Byrne can retire. But this is also the most blatant outcome of the wisdom of the world. You might be outraged by things like this. But should we really be surprised? For the answer to that and for a revelation of something secret and hidden to which every Christian has access... I want you to follow along as I read uh, the passage that I originally put in your bulletin there in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. The Apostle Paul has spent the opening part of this letter reminding the Christians in Corinth that the wisdom of the world is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of God. The two are incompatible. The world does not understand God's wisdom. In fact, the world thinks it's crazy, it's, it's folly, that a message of a crucified Savior would have any sort of appeal. And Christians and the church should not be attracted to the world's wisdom. But that's exactly what was happening here in the church in Corinth. These Christians were being influenced by the world. They were attracted to the same sorts of things, uh, fads, uh, ways of thinking, people to idolize, those same sort of things that the culture around them was attracted to. And this led to a sense of pride, taking sides, And that very fact was disrupting the unity and the effectiveness of the church. They weren't looking any different than the world around them. They had lost their distinctiveness. And so Paul comes along and tells them to stand away and stand apart from the culture. To remember from where they came and from what ways of thinking that they had been rescued from. He starts out by talking about a different kind of wisdom. And he calls it here a secret and hidden wisdom. For Rhonda Byrne, the secret included the fact you are wisdom. But what Paul says here could not be any more contrary to that. Paul says that the kind of wisdom he's talking about is unknowable and unattainable by any human on their own. It stays hidden. It stays a secret unless someone from outside ourselves decides to make the secret known. And so Paul says his role as an apostle is to impart wisdom. But it's a wisdom of a different kind. Yet among the mature, he says in verse 6, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. The mature here, I believe, is talking about all Christians. In chapter 3, He's going to talk about different levels of growth among Christians. But here Mature is talking, I I think, just about someone who's been redeemed. This is a true believer. And Paul makes a number of contrasts in this section. You can see the first ones there in the words not, but. Not and then but. Verse 6 is an example. Not a wisdom of this age, but a secret and hidden, hidden wisdom. There's a contrast there. Or verse 12, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Verse 13, words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. And then there's one last contrast to drive it home there in verses 14 and 15, between the natural man and the spiritual man. When you break it down, there's actually three contrasts here. And I'm using D.A. Carson's outline here from his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, and those three points there that you have in your sermon notes. First of all, there's those who don't receive God's wisdom, or those who receive God's wisdom, sorry, and those who don't. From verses 6 to the beginning of verse 10. So Paul's role here is to impart wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Well, we have to remember that wisdom, um, along with a couple of other words, was sort of a watchword in that culture there in Corinth. There was a higher kind of wisdom and and a higher kind of maturity which was usually marked by how well um, someone could make a speech or express themselves in a debate. You'll remember that this is what was causing divisions. Even in the church, people were aligning themselves behind certain speakers. Even people like Paul and Apollos, Christian speakers who had no... Inkling that they wanted to get people to align behind them in this way and to cause those sort of divisions. And of course some pious ones were even aligning themselves behind Christ. We're not of any man, but we're with Christ. And so that was, that's what was happening in the church there. And so Paul is sort of redefining those terms here, especially that word wisdom. Paul has come to them in words as well, but they're words that are totally foreign and immature and foolish to what the people there were expecting. But he redefines that by saying that those foolish words are actually words of wisdom. They're the words of the cross. What to the elite of that day might have been words of weakness and folly, Paul says those same words for us who come to believe are words of power and wisdom. And so Paul says here in verse 6 that the stuff I'm saying to you is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who, by the way, are... Doomed to pass away. The wisdom that they have has a, has a short shelf life. But he says, The stuff that I'm saying to you is a secret in his the hidden, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That's what it is. It's a secret in his hidden wisdom of God, which God has decreed a long time ago. It's a different kind of wisdom. It's a kind of wisdom that isn't accessible to everyone. It's a mysterious to most. Wisdom of the cross. That's the kind of wisdom we're talking about here. Back in verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or in one twenty-three, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or even further back in chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. This wisdom is the cross. This wisdom is salvation. This wisdom is the gospel. And it's a wisdom that's hidden in secret except to those who are called. And for them, the wisdom of God was decreed before the ages, from eternity past. Why? Well, it says there, for our glory. So there are those who receive God's wisdom and those who don't. For some, it gets revealed. For others, it remains secret and hidden. It says in verse 8 that none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the King of Glory. And so Paul sort of sets up the Uh, the crucifiers of Jesus here as an example of those who do not receive God's wisdom. If they were in any way wise, they would never have uh, crucified the one who would have rescued them from being doomed to pass away. And so their crucifying Jesus is proof that they didn't possess this hidden wisdom. Instead of being their savior, Jesus became their stumbling block. The one that they would trip over. Instead of recognizing Jesus as God's wisdom, they ascribed the entire plan of salvation as folly, foolishness. They actually even thought they were wise by doing away with Jesus. Yet in their folly, they actually, ironically, ended up bringing about God's purpose, God's plan. God's eternal purpose. None of the rulers of this age understood that. And there are many today who don't understand this. Sadly, it stays hidden. People still do not believe. People reject Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. They still do that. People still will not receive this wisdom. It says there that God has especially prepared this wisdom for believers, for those who love him. Look again at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Here's how believers start to understand this hidden secret. Uh, Paul loosely quotes here from Isaiah 64, verse 4. And we sometimes um, mistakenly use this verse, although it's not wrong, we sometimes use this verse to talk about how God is preparing heaven for us. And it's true that he's doing all those things, but you don't get that from this verse. This verse isn't talking about heaven. It's talking about God's work in preparing some people to receive his secret and hidden wisdom. So I hope that for those of you that are Christians, that this, with this passage, you're starting to see how God has worked in your life to be able to get where you are now in terms of being able to understand the cross. Uh, even if you've grown up in a Christian home, God had to do some uh, preparatory work in your eyes and in your ears and in your hearts in order for you to love God and to not reject God. You didn't just get there by osmosis. This is not uh, a self-generated kind of wisdom. If it were up to you on your own, you'd never get there. You arrived there by the before-the-ages work of God whereby He enabled you to repent of your sins and to to awaken your faith to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Ephesians 2 says, this is the gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. So the question is, how and by whom are these things revealed? Who was it that let us in on the secret? Now look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us. How? Through the Spirit, There it is. These things, these secret hidden things, God has revealed to us through his Holy Spirit. And with this, Paul starts sort of an extended consideration on the work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of his people. Sometimes, among Christians, I think the third member of the Trinity is, is somewhat of a mysterious person. We know about God the Father. We know a lot about God the Son, but what is the role of the Holy Spirit? I think there's a lot of confusion in our day. There's sort of a large and growing segment of so-called Christianity, or self-described Christianity that's looking for increasingly strange and bizarre manifestations of the Spirit, many of which are patently unbiblical or at best extra-biblical. They feel like there's some experience that they're missing. And so a lot of this, even a lot of the songs that come from these sorts of places are songs of longing. You know, this sort of refrain that says, give me more, more, I want more, I need more. As if they somehow haven't got enough, or at least they feel like that there's something that they're missing. And it's the Holy Spirit that they think that gives them whatever it is uh, that they feel like they're missing. seems like even in some conversations that I've had lately, I've gotten the same question when someone asks me about our church. Here's the question that I've heard numerous times lately. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Does your church believe in the Holy Spirit? And I usually say, yeah, he's in the Bible, and we teach the Bible. But I think I know what they mean when they ask that. It's usually these subjective manifestations of their spirit the Holy Spirit that they're interested in. But one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is here in this passage. The Holy Spirit reveals the things of God, and he reveals Jesus himself. John MacArthur says that the Holy Spirit has invaded man's closed box, those secret places, and shown him God. In order to truly understand Jesus, and in order to believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has to do a work of revealing, of revelation. And praise God, the Holy Spirit reveals the wisdom of God to His children. Without the Holy Spirit, our eyes and our ears and our hearts would remain closed to God and His ways. Our eyes and our ears and our hearts would would remain closed to be able to understand the gospel itself. If you are a Christian, you need to know that the Holy Spirit has invaded your life, a life that was destined for doom, And has shown you Jesus. Your faith rests in the power of God through His Spirit. And that brings us to the next contrast. You see that down in verse 12. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Paul's main point here, I think, is that no human being can know God unless the Spirit of God gives us understanding in, into the things of God, just what I've been talking about before. We are created in God's image, but sin has made too big of a gap between us and God, big enough that it's impossible for us on our own, with all our ingenuity, with all our uh, intellectual capabilities, It's impossible for us to know God. Carson says, the distance is too great, the self-centeredness is too deep. And Paul uses an example here. He says that we can't know the thoughts of another human. The most we can know is our own thoughts. And if we can't know what someone else is thinking, we definitely can't comprehend the thoughts of God. It's an argument sort of from the lesser to the greater. Thoughts of God are too high for us. They're too deep for us. They're they're too far beyond us. Only the Spirit of God can know the thoughts of God. But here's where God's goodness and God's uh, grace really is amazing. God comes near. He comes near in Jesus at, uh, at the Incarnation, which we're going to be celebrating for the next month here. But He comes to us also with His Holy Spirit. We have received, we have received Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. How does that bridge get gapped? How do you get close to God? How how can you know the thoughts of God? God gives us the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. God gives. We receive. Notice that we are uh, passive actors in this one. This is framed as God's gift. And we receive the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things, here it is again, freely given us by God. But back for a minute to the contrast. And here are some implications of this great truth for your life. We have conversely not received the Spirit of the world. These people in that church in Corinth needed to hear this because they were in danger of being influenced by the world. And that danger, uh, as we've learned throughout this book, this letter, constantly lurks for us too. And so if the Spirit helps us understand God's thoughts, then Paul is saying here, live there. That's where you need to live. Live and walk and breathe in that uh, exalted, rarefied air. You have the secret. Don't go back there and breathe the air of worldliness and, and self and, and, and this world that ends in, in darkness and hopelessness. The Corinthians had an issue with worldliness. And they also had an issue with being easily persuaded by people's ability to talk and debate and argue. And so Paul goes back to this concept of words. We impart this, this wisdom from God, in Words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. These are the words that count. So in your reading, in your listening, in your watching, don't be finally persuaded by words that fall in line with the spirit of the world. Counselors and psychologists and psychotherapists and self-help gurus, without the Spirit of God, because there are some in those fields, with the Spirit of God, but those without the Spirit of God will tell you lots of things. But they are unable to help you with what really matters. They are long on the wisdom of the world, but short, uh, empty on the thoughts of God. They may help you see things from a world's perspective, but they cannot give you a biblical perspective or a biblical worldview. So don't long after the hidden secrets that tell you more about your inner self. After all, what you will find in your inner self will lead you nowhere. In fact, you won't even like what you find. Despite what people like Rhonda Byrne say, what you find within yourself is not finally helpful. Jeremiah seventeen nine The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What is finally helpful are words taught by the Spirit. And just remember that you have special access to those words. Well, the last contrast is in verses 14 and 15 between the natural person and the spiritual person. The natural person, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, on the other hand, I'm adding there, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. The natural person here is the person without the Holy Spirit. The spiritual person, obviously, and by definition, is the one with the Holy Spirit. But here it gives a sad indictment of the natural person. It says there, he does not, and he is not able. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he isn't able to understand the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. He does not, and he's not able. I think the order of those two things might be important there. On the one hand, we almost could feel sorry for the natural person because he isn't able to understand. He can't help himself. There's an inability. And how can you fault someone for that? But it seems here to be sort of a culpable inability. He is unable, but he is still responsible for not believing. He's not able to understand because... The first part there, he doesn't accept the things of God. Let me just stop there to say that maybe you identify with that description. You do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and and you don't understand all of this stuff that we're talking about. Jesus, the cross, all those sort of things. Well, it might just be that God is using this word today, combined with you being here today, to open your eyes and your ears and your heart for the first time to be able to have a new understanding of God and of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. If that is happening to you right now, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest because that's just the way God works. He works through the Word of God as it gets applied by the Spirit of God. Natural man doesn't want to know God Or if he does, he only wants to accept God on his terms. He wants to fashion a God according to his own image. A God that accepts him for who he is, rather than he accept God for who God is. They create a God whose standard shifts with their standard. God's character is open to change as culture changes, as we become more enlightened. You know, God just changes with us. Who's in charge in that scenario? But he continues, a spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. You know, on the surface, that sounds like someone who is spiritual is beyond reproof. But that's not what it means. All it means that is that, contrary to the world's estimation of Christians as being uh, foolish, simpletons, contrary to that Impression of the world, the spiritual person is actually wise because he has known both the spirit of the world and the spirit of God. He's, he's lived on both sides. Natural people just don't understand the things of the spiritual realm. And so if you're looking for a spiritual perspective on some issue, don't go to the natural man. He won't be able to give you a proper evaluation or advice from a biblical or spiritual perspective. And so Paul ends with this, for who has understood the mind of God so as to instruct him? Answer, no one. But, he says, we have the mind of Christ. You can understand truth. You can understand the wisdom of God. You can understand the power of the cross. But this is also Paul's final salvo in this section to the spiritual person who somehow wants to keep one foot in the world. This is God telling us, telling the church one more time to orient ourselves around him and around his wisdom and around his word. Use the wisdom of God as a measuring stick to help you evaluate whether something is of the world or of God. Now I have to admit, these things are not easy to navigate. Sometimes make it think that it is, but I have trouble navigating these things. What is of the world? What is of God? What things do we do? What things do we lay aside? It's very difficult. But you are not without help, without one secret resource. If you are a Christian, you have in your possession the key to unlocking the wisdom of God, and that key is the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed with Him at your conversion, and He will remind you of the things that Jesus said and commanded. He will reveal God to you and he will reveal God's ways to you. And so I would encourage you, I would encourage us uh, as a church to embrace the secret wisdom of God and at the same time to reject the wisdom of the world. And then the other application here is to be humble. Realize again that your ability to see the wisdom of God in the cross is dependent, was dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. So thank him. Thank the Spirit. Honor Him for giving you that insight and for that understanding that enabled you to repent of your sins and to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. This is the secret and hidden wisdom of God. Let's bow in prayer.